Yesterday afternoon, I looked out over the yucky brown grass of the backyard and go, Lord, it'd be nice for some color. White was not the color I was expecting, but that's what he has given us. I invite you to join me in the book of Matthew as we work our way to Resurrection Sunday. Uh, Last week, we looked at the betrayals, the betrayal of Judas, one of uh, Jesus' disciples that, that he knew all along was going to be the traitor. That didn't surprise him. And how he betrayed Jesus with a kiss. We looked at the religious leaders who should have recognized that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah. He did all the works that the Messiah would have done. And yet they found him guilty of blasphemy. And thirdly, we looked at Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, but one of Jesus' close disciples, and how he denied even knowing Jesus three times. This week, we jump ahead to the path to Golgotha and the crucifixion. And like last week, we'll incorporate some of the other Gospels to help us give a fuller picture, but I invite you to follow along with me, if you would, as I read from Matthew chapter 27. We'll begin reading in verse 32. I still hear the pages turning, so I'll wait. Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, 
and yielded up his spirit. Would you pray with me? Father, the events of the crucifixion haunt us. Because we know that everything that happened to our Lord and Savior was wrong, was unjust. For he didn't deserve to be treated this way. We deserved it. And Father, there, there are many details in today's passage. Lord, I pray that you would help us to hone in on the parts that you want us to see today. That we would understand and know the things that you want us to understand and know that we would feel the things that you want us to feel and that we would respond how you want us to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. People often ask, why do bad things happen to good people? Right? It's a legit question, isn't it? I mean, how often have you seen a person who did everything morally right only to have their business struggle, and then you see someone else who's uh, just known to be corrupt, and that person is successful in every measure? Right? Why does evil prosper? Jeremiah put it this way in Jeremiah chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? It's Jeremiah's way of asking, why do good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people? The psalmist put it this way in Psalm number 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off us. Why does God allow nations to be so evil? And why is it so hard for those who are good? Job Put it this way in Job chapter 21, verse 7. Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? When Job had lost so much, he certainly could have asked the same question, why do bad things happen to good people? The struggle is real, isn't it? All throughout Scripture, we find examples of wicked people having success while those who are good, who are trying to live godly lives, suffer. Why? Why do bad things happen to good people? It's a legitimate question. It's okay to ask that question. But the precise answer to that question is not what most people are looking for. The precise answer to that question is Romans chapter 3, verse 10, where the Word of God says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. So the answer to the question is, why do bad things happen to good people? The answer is, there aren't good people. 
There was only one time that bad things happened to a good people, and that's what we're looking at today. When the evil of the world was placed on the one righteous man, Jesus Christ. There are no good people, not in God's definition of good. There are no good people except for Jesus, the only man ever to take a breath who was good in the fullest sense of the word. The very first man, Adam, sinned, and every descendant of his, which we are, inherited his sin nature. And because of the existence of sin, bad things abound. Horrible things abound. The earth is corrupted by sin, and that's why things break. It's why people get hurt. It's why the roads were slippery today. Death itself is a reality because of sin. There are lots of people who would try to take millions of years of evolution and fit them into Genesis somehow and, and be okay with accepting uh, a very old earth and, and evolution of animals transitioning to higher life forms developing to us. But if that is true, then there is no salvation because Paul, in Romans chapter 5, keys in on Adam. And Adam can only be Adam if he's created as God said he was, not if he evolved from animals. And here's what I'm saying. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul writes these words, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man... And death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. That's Adam, right? Death came because of Adam. You can't have millions of years of death before Adam because death didn't exist until Adam. And later in the same chapter, Paul makes another connection parallel to Adam. You know this verse as well, Romans 5.18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. He makes a connection. Because of one man's sin, Adam, because he sinned, we're all sinners, we all die. But because of one man's righteousness, Jesus, in him we have life. Back to our question, why do bad things happen to good people? The purest answer to that question, and don't, don't irritate people if they ask you that, okay? But the purest answer to that question is that only happened once. It happened to Jesus when he was crucified for your sins and for mine. Our big idea this morning is the cross was the greatest crime ever. Verses 32 through 35, we see the humiliation of Jesus. Uh, Matthew mentions this man from Cyrene. Cyrene is uh, in Libya. Uh, so this would be an African man named Simon who carried the cross for Jesus. But other scriptures tell us that Jesus carried his cross. So which was it? Well, it was both. Jesus was uh, affixed to the cross beam and had to carry it out of town, but he was so weakened by the, his beatings that someone else had to help him. And so Simon carries it the rest of the way. Last week, we looked at, uh, just briefly at Isaiah 
53, verse 7, how Jesus would be silent before his accusers, that, as Isaiah prophesied, and we saw that fulfilled in Matthew 26 last week. Uh, this week we see more of Isaiah 53 being fulfilled. Isaiah 53, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom we and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. What we're going to see in our passage is more rejection of people. Jesus had been found worthy of death by the religious leaders. We saw that last week in chapter 26. Pilate had no legal reason to put him to death. That, that uh, narrative happens in the interim between last week's and what we're looking at this week. But let's look at a couple verses there. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. That scourging that's just mentioned briefly here was a very violent act of beating. The Romans would take a, a leather whip and affix various sharp rocks and pieces of metal, anything that would grab the skin. And historians tell us that when Jesus was, after he was beaten, he was unrecognizable as a man. So harsh was the scourging. The Romans excelled at, at a slow, torturous execution. Sometimes people would die during the scourging, so they learned to back off, to not beat someone quite that badly, so that they could live longer and suffer more. So Jesus was beaten to within an inch of his life. He was further mocked. Since the accusation was that he was the king of the Jews, that's, that, that's what gets put on the placard on the cross that, as to why he was being crucified. Uh, because of his accusation of being king of the Jews, a crown of thorns was fashioned for him and hammered into his head. Nowhere in the Bible is crucifixion actually explained. Matthew simply says in verse 35, when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes. Mark says, and they crucified him. Luke says, and when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. John simply says, there they crucified him. Biblical writers felt no need to describe crucifixion because everyone knew what crucifixion was. Crucifixion was not invented by the Romans, but they perfected it. They made it as slow and painful of a death as possible. The guilty would be attached to a wooden beam with nails, with spikes. Uh, we talk about him being in his hands, it was most likely in his wrist in between those two bones right there. 
They discovered that people died too quickly if they just hung them by their arms because when your arms are like this, it's hard to breathe. And so they would nail their feet to the cross so they could push up with their legs so they could gasp for breath even longer. The Romans worked really hard to make death as painful and as slow as possible, but also as humiliating as possible. Typically, the crucified were naked. Now, the Romans may have afforded the Jews, because of their religious sensibilities, uh, the modesty of a loincloth, though that's not confirmed. We don't know. What we do know was that someone would die if they were fully clothed and nailed to a cross. They didn't do it because it was more painful. They did it because it was more humiliating. When they crucified people, they, they didn't go find a hidden valley somewhere. They put them out by a main road. Why? So that they'd be more humiliated. So that people would, seeing that would, uh, would, would be powerfully warned against doing whatever that person did. The Bible tells us that Jesus' clothes were divided amongst four of the, the Roman soldiers and they drew straws, they cast lots to see who would get his nice overcoat. Crucifixion was more than an execution, it was humiliation, it was shame. It's fitting that our sin would be remediated in such a way. When you commit a crime in the United States, um, oftentimes there's just a fine attached to it. You pay some money. Um, maybe there's some jail time where you go to a place that has some heat and some cooling and some food and some sanitation. Our idea of remediation for crimes is actually really clean and nice. But our sin is not clean or nice. Our sin deserved this type of punishment. So Jesus did it for us. Verses 36 37, we read, and, and over his head they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. The other gospel writers um, give us a little more information that the, the phrase was actually a little bit longer. It was also written in multiple languages. Everyone who was visiting needed to know what this man did. Why was Jesus being crucified? Because he's the king of the Jews. And the Jews rejected him. You know, had the religious believers truly believed what Pilate had inscribed, that Jesus is the king of the Jews, had these religious leaders truly believed Jesus as king of the Jews, there would have been no cross for Jesus. He would have never been executed. 
but Jesus' rejection was absolutely necessary and it was absolutely complete. It was prophesied. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. It was foretold even in the Gospel of John, uh, foretold in the sense that we're told about it before his crucifixion. John didn't write it before it happened. John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Jesus was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. Next verse. He came to his own, the Jewish people, and his own did not receive him. Not only did the the religious leaders reject him and, and have him sentenced to death, we think of the religious leaders as the elite, the guys who were right next to Jesus as he was crucified, those would be the scum of the earth, right? We're talking about the other two on the cross. Now, the, the words that our Bible uses are robbers or thief. Uh, the, the actual word means insurrectionists. These were people who were trying to stir up strife against the Roman government and overthrow the government. They were indeed enemies of the state, Matthew writes about them beginning in verse 38. They were crucified along with him, one on either side of him. And as he's hanging on the cross, even those insurrectionists, even those scum of the earth people who, who deserved what they were getting, even they mocked Jesus. Now remember, Jesus was on the cross for three hours. Because some of you are thinking right now, yeah, but one of them believed. Yeah, one of them did believe. We'll talk about that in a minute. But for a time, even the other, th- the other two being crucified were mocking Jesus. The chief priests come through and mock him. Verse 42, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Could he save himself? Yes, he could. He's God. He could have made the nails just fall out. He could have made every wound heal immediately. He's God. He could have done it. And we looked at last week, he could have called legions of angels to rescue him. They mocked him. He saved others. He can't even save himself. Matthew emphasizes how various people experienced the crucifixion along with Jesus. How these robbers mocked him. How Simon was one who got caught up into it. um, Having to carry the cross for Jesus. How the soldiers responded we'll look at more of that next week Um, what Matthew stresses is the universal rejection of our Lord the real crime the greatest crime ever perpetuated we read about in verses 45 through 50 Jesus is close to death and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Jesus is God. He has been with God the Father for all of eternity. They are one in spirit. They are unified in every way. They are two distinct persons. Don't get it messed up. But they are one. And for the first time in all of eternity, they had to be completely separated. The Father turned his face away from the Son, is, is the metaphor. The Father had to turn away from Jesus because Jesus, in that moment, he was our sin. For those who lie, he was the liar. For those who kill, he was the murderer. He was the rapist. Every sin that we commit, he became on that cross. Of course the Father had to turn away. The greatest pain of the cross was not the nails, nor the crown of thorns, nor the beating. And don't get me wrong, I'm not diminishing any of that. But that was not the greatest pain. The greatest pain was the separation from the Father. The sin of mankind rested on Jesus, on God the Son, and God the Father had to separate himself from that. The cries of Jesus coming from the cross were not cries of pain. They were cries of abandonment. Jesus was holy in all he ever did for all of eternity. I can't think in terms like that. I try to talk in terms like that, but I can't think in terms like that. For all eternity past, he was always completely holy in everything that he did, thought, spoke. Every attitude was always perfectly holy. And in this time on the cross, he took on all of our sin. Peter writes it this way, 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus did all this so that we could be right with God. The cross was the greatest crime ever. Let's go back to those two men that were crucified with him. Luke tells more of a story of what happened with them in Luke chapter 23. Luke 23, beginning in verse 39, I'll just read a handful of verses for you. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Why did Jesus say, you'll be with me in paradise? Why, why did Jesus tell him, I'm going to save you, you'll be with me forever? Why did he tell him that? He didn't go to church. That thief on the cross had never gone to the temple that we know of. If he did, it didn't make a change in who he was. This, this man on the cross didn't pray a specifically worded prayer. He didn't give an offering. He didn't do any good works. He was saved the same way you and I are saved. He was saved by believing that Jesus is God the Son and that he paid for my sin. What is your relationship to the cross? Is it a, just a story we talk about from time to time? Is it uh, a figurine that we might have on a necklace or a piece of artwork? Do you even think of the cross often? Do you remember the cross with somber recognition that the suffering of Jesus was the suffering you deserved? Daily, we should consider the cross. Daily, we should remember the gravity, the weight, the horrific nature of our sin. We should confess it and abandon it. I think too often we, we think of our sins as something little. We might tell a lie and consider it a white lie. We might gossip and call it a prayer request. We might be angry and feel justified in our anger when Jesus calls anger murder. What we don't recognize is that even a little white lie deserved the gruesome death of the cross. That even a passing phrase that we didn't even put a lot of thought into, is a sin deserving the cross, the cruel cross of Christ. So daily, we need to remember the gravity of our sin, confess it, abandon it. Daily, we need to remember the cross, and in doing so, we should be also renewed with joy. Renewed with joy because the cross is eternal in its scope. It was three hours hanging on a tree 2,000 years ago. But it was eternal in its scope. Paying for your sin and my sin that we've ever committed and ever will commit. Paying for the sin of all generations to come. Paying for sin all the way back to Adam for anyone who would believe. Eternal in scope. Praise God, the cross is eternal in its scope. What's your relationship with the cross? 
Would you pray with me? Father, when we consider the cross, its, its cruelty, its disgusting nature, its shameful nature, when we remember the cross for what it is, it is the reflection, the image of our sin. Lord, I pray that it would break us. That it would cause us to reevaluate how we live and think and speak. That it would help us to recognize what sin really means and it would cause us to live for you. Lord, remind us of the cross and instill in us the peace that comes from knowing Jesus as our Savior. To understand the joy that comes from being forgiven. Lord, I pray that we would never use that forgiveness as license to sin, but that it would put in us a passion to live godly lives ourselves and to share what the cross means to us with others around us. So, Father, use the truth of Calvary in our hearts today and throughout this week as we approach Resurrection Sunday, I pray that you would remind us of, of all the things that, uh, that we say and do that have been paid for by Jesus so that we might uh, grow in Christ, that we might be more like our Savior in how he lived and how he responded to people. Lord, I ask that you would Bless us with this type of spiritual growth in each one of us as we seek to live for you in Jesus' name.